This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Welcome to Events at Rand. This episode is a live recording of a conversation on the life and legacy of scholar James Q. Wilson with those who knew and worked with him. Our panelists today are Dr. Pietro Nivola, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the C. Douglas Dillon Chair in Governance Studies. He has served in a number of positions at Brookings since 1988 and had previously taught at the University of Vermont and Harvard University. Dr. R. Shep Melnick is the Thomas P. O'Neill Professor of American Politics at Boston College. His research and writing focus on the intersection of law and politics. Dr. Melnick is co-chair of the Harvard Program on Constitutional Government, and he has taught at Harvard and at Brandeis University. Dr. Angela Hawken is Associate Professor of Economics and Policy Analysis at Pepperdine University. She is an alumna of the Pardee Rand Graduate School and is a former student of James Q. Wilson. Her research focuses on drug policy and criminal justice, and she consults regularly with the United Nations and the State Department. Our moderator tonight is Dr. Susan Marquis, Dean of the Frederick S. Pardee Rand Graduate School, Vice President of Emerging Policy Research and Methods, and holds the Distinguished Chair in Policy Analysis at RAND. She has served in policy positions with the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and the Army Chief of Staff. And now, let's join the conversation. And thank you, everyone, for coming. This is an extraordinary event for us. We have had more fun working on this. Uh, I heard uh, Rachel Swinger, Associate Dean, said, this is the best thing I've worked on since I've been here. It's fabulous. <laughs> so this has been great fun, and we're glad you all can be part of it. Um, I'd like to open up by talking a little bit. We keep mentioning Jim's work. Jim's work, and he's worked on uh, criminology. He's worked on uh, policing. He's worked on bureaucracy. But there was something that was behind all of Jim's work. There's something that made his approach different from others. So I'd like to open up by asking our, our speakers today, talk a little bit about what was Jim's approach to research and how was it different from others? And take it a little further, how did that different approach actually influence your work? Uh, Shep, let's start. Um, last April, I was asked to write uh, an article about Jim's work, so I really had to focus on this question. What really made it his work different? What, what really led his work to rise above I think everything else in American political science. Um, and it was, it's hard to say what his methodology was because I don't remember him ever talking about methodology. <laughs> um, he wouldn't say, you know, uh, he would say, go out and observe things. Uh, talk about things that are important. So what I, the more I thought about it, I, a couple of things really became significant. One was he took the perspective of citizens of asking big questions that matter to the country and not to political scientists. He didn't write to the literature. He didn't write for journals. He wrote from the perspective of a thoughtful citizen. 
And that's why, one reason why his classes were so great, because he really communicated important things to the students who were interested in politics and not just in academic writings. So that's one. Um, another was that he was such a thoroughgoing empiricist. But by that, he, he meant all kinds of empirical evidence. Sometimes it's quantitative. Uh, sometimes it's riding around in police cars, uh, seeing what people are doing. Sometimes it's observing changes in the culture. Things like that are very hard to quantify, but they're equally important. And I th think I'd say the final thing is that he was, uh, there are some uh, social scientists who look for general themes, iron laws, uh, big generalizations, and then there are others who are really interested in particular details. Um, biographers or writers of case studies. And Jim was able to put those two things together, to look not for single rules that applied everywhere, um, but to look to, for uh, patterns of varieties of political behavior. And I use that varieties of behavior because that was the title of one of his best books, Varieties of Police Behavior, um, so that we understand the complexity of the world better, the richness of the world, but we don't simply say, well, that's all very complex and we can't understand it. But it really gave us kind of models of how you can make sense out of this complex world. So I'll just give one example. His four types of politics that many of you might be familiar with. Um, it's just a great way to start off to think about a problem to get students to think about the way in which policies differ. So I would name those three features of his work. Well, let's, Pietro, let me ask you, how did he, he influenced your work? How did he, he was your, we should point out here, I, I don't know if we've made this entirely clear, both Shep and Pietro were uh, students of Jim's, and so uh, really their original intellectual guide here. So Pietro, how did this different approach, uh, based on facts, based on uh, obser observation, shape your approach? Well, first of all, I'm <clears throat> just delighted to be here, and no one, um, Susan influenced my work more than uh, Professor Wilson did. <clears throat> uh, it, it's true, uh, as, as Shep was just saying, that he didn't uh, have a particular narrow type of methodology in, in how he approached the, the issues that he was interested in. But he, he did have a methodology, and it was very eclectic. It, it involved, I mean, he was good at all sorts of different methods of inquiry. Um, and he um, was, in particular, um, interested in getting his students to do hands-on empirical work, meaning sort of behave more like, if you will, anthropologists than, you know, mathematical modelers or econometricians. Uh, he wanted us to go out there and look at how the world works as it as it in fact does. Now, in terms of uh, his influence on me, I mean, <clears throat> that was certainly part of it, but uh, I would say this. Um, Jim ha would sort of hint very often to, that, I, that one should be beware of conventional wisdom. In some ways, Jim was a contrarian by nature, um, which, he, which he picked up I think from his own teacher, Ed, Edward C. Banfield, who was a teacher of mine, so I guess I picked up some of it from both of them. But, but Jim would really ch challenge conventional wisdom. He's skeptical. When he, he would often say, uh, whenever you hear the sentence, a sentence that begins with 
as everybody knows, dot, dot, dot. You can be sure that, you know, people don't know all that much. So I... Uh, <laughs> So, so that was one thing, and I, I mean, that runs throughout my work. Um, I, I'm a bit of a contrarian in my own uh, research. Um, um, two, two other things, uh, or three, that are important, uh, were important for me. He, he uh, Bill, uh, uh, Jim was a um, strong believer in looking at the institutional uh, design of the American political system, the Madisonian system, that explained a great deal to him, both in, the, in terms of its formal institutions and in terms of informal uh, practices and in, uh, you know, unofficial behaviors that go on within that system. And that, I think, was very important. Um, as you know, Jim, uh, many of you know, Jim was a, a, a car aficionado. He was from these parts, from Los Angeles. And he would really tell his students, you've got to look under the hood to figure out what's going on. Very often, and using another little car metaphor. I mean, the final thing I would say is, <clears throat> uh, he uh, would in, would urge us to look at where the rubber meets the road, which is uh, that you can have excellent public policies, well designed, well intended, and so on, but they can falter where the rubber meets the road, which is at the implementation stage. So that was a key, a, a, a key consideration, which I think had a, a profound influence on me. Well, let's pick up on that for just a minute. Um, thinking about Jim's work, you're talking about where the rubber meets his road, uh, where the rubber meets the road. He was really focused when he was looking at what does the government do and why does it do what it does. He was really talk, focused on the operators. Um, you know, anyone here, how... How was that focus on the operators different from the approaches others took? Uh, following up on what Pietro said about how he advised us to do research, um, by operators he meant the people in the organization who do the, the, who do the work that justifies having the organization in the first place. So you can't assume that they're going to be following all of the grand policy dictates that come from the top. You can't assume that they're going to be doing what the managers <coughs> want them to do. So he spent a lot of time looking at what, what does determine what people at the bottom do. Um, and I know in my research, that was extremely helpful. I started, looked at the way in which courts had affected environmental policy. And taking his advice, I went and talked about the people who enforce environmental laws. And so, you know, what do you do? And tried to say, well, how do you interact with the courts? And it was that level to say, what is it that determines what a policeman does on the beat? Um, is it the formal rules that come down from the police department? Well, probably not. Um, it's the situational imperatives, as he called it, that of facing difficult, often dangerous situations, having to make snap judgments about who is dangerous and who is trustworthy. Uh, and part of that means that it's not as rule-abiding as we'd like to think it is. Um, and I think that's a profoundly important feature of his work, that to focus on what it is where citizens meet government and what that, how that can be controlled from above. 
If I follow on that, I think, I think Jim was much more inclined to actually speak to people than most academics. So I think mm -hmm. we're really stuffy and unfriendly by and large. Uh, he loved <laughs> to be out there on the streets mm -hmm. and, and, and engage. And I think if you speak, especially if you speak to police who were ever involved with his work, um, just how enthusiastic he was about actually, and, and paying attention. Often we think you know, we're, 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 the, we're the bearers of knowledge and we're here to just you know, share our great wisdom with you. But he listened very carefully. But I think there were other few ways in which he, he really differentiated himself that we haven't touched on yet. And the first is... Um, his minority status. Uh, he was a minority. He was a conservative in an environment that was primarily liberal, <laughs> and that changed how he thought and how he behaved in a way that shaped him and I think made him a much smarter, clearer thinker. Um, that minority status meant that he had to be careful and he had to be super productive. I mean, there were very few academics that produced uh, quite as much as he, as he did. The other thing I really appreciated about him was, was his breadth. I think the definition of a PhD these days is that you learn more and more about less and less so that on the day of graduation you know everything about nothing, right? Um, and and he, really did, he, he really wasn't a supporter of that kind of model. He really made us believe that being good at many different things helped you be better at every one of those things, that if you worked on A, B, and C, that you were better at C because of what you were doing with A. And that was really quite unusual. We typically do tend to focus on, on more and more and more, on less and less and less. I think also what made him different, and, and we have talked about this a little, is just how practical he was. We tend to not be very practical as academics, and he wasn't really interested in your ideas if it didn't actually matter. Was this going to make a difference? Uh, really got his attention. Well, Angela, you bring up the fact that um, Jim was well-known as a conservative. Occasionally, the phrase neoconservative was applied uh, to his approach. And yet, here was a man who cared deeply about government, um, valued government, and appreciated the job that government workers do in the face of extraordinary constraints with uh, um, conflicting and uh, broad goals, vague goals, with uh, the constraints having to do with the the process, the budget process, and the number of stakeholders, and uh, and yet were able. He was amazed that the government was able to accomplish anything at all, <laughs> and he seemed to appreciate it a great deal. I mean, how unusual was that? Well, I'd say the, the, the book *Bureaucracy*, which is just an amazing book, um, probably will displease uh, or surprise many conservatives because it is not an attack on bureaucracy. Um, it is, talks about how we make so many conflicting demands on democracy, uh, on bureaucracy. We want it to be efficient and effective. We want it to be accountable and responsive. We want to avoid scandal, and we want it to do great things. And he showed really in this very short, brilliant article how it can't do all of those things at once. Um, I guess I think one of the takeaways from the book is that uh, there are a lot of constraints on bureaucracy, and especially American bureaucracy, uh, because there are so many masters, so many conflicting demands. Therefore, be careful what you ask bureau public bureaucracies to do. Right. Um, so if you, if you carefully design uh, the tasks and the organization, it can do some extremely important things. Um, but it's hard to narrow the, the, the responsibilities in a way that's practical to get them done. I, I think that's right. I mean, he, uh, Jim was was very clear that you know agencies that have are, are assigned manageable tasks are going to do a better job than agencies that are assigned vague and confusing and conflicting tasks um, with conflicting goals. Um, in general, though, uh, Shep, I would have to say that um, Jim's inclination was to 
prefer that people lower their expectations about what an activist government can, can accomplish. And indeed, uh, to respect uh, the way our political institutions sometimes prevent government from taking uh, ill-considered or precipitous action. Um, sometimes he would, you know, as Jim would say, you know, it's just better to uh, uh, don't just do something, stand there. Uh, and uh, and uh, <clears throat> in light of sort of the recent debates on, on fiscal policy, sometimes I think uh, that's been a, uh, sort of a, a, an unheralded blessing in our, in our system from, from time to time. I mean, we, we didn't take the route of uh, some of the European parliamentary regimes, for example, in taking very pre premature pre precipitous action in uh, austerity measures and, above all, tax increases. Well, let me pick up on that. Pietro, yeah. you wrote a little bit about, um, as an example of uh, Jim being uh, far too thoughtful and far too evidence-based, perhaps, and uh, to rely on sort of standard ideologies or what everyone knows. Uh, you brought up the example of his analysis, his uh, uh, reaction to the stimulus package in 2009. Yeah, um, this was interesting because I worked with Jim on a paper for the Hoover Institution, which was an attempt to evaluate the stimulus. Um, and it took a long time to, to figure out how we were going to grapple with this question because, for one thing, it, it's, it was very hard for either of us to make a, uh, a, 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 you know, have a verdict about it when we were writing about it, which was back in 2009, 2010. It was just a little too early. But, <clears throat> but um, uh, what, we, what we finally did agree uh, on was what, 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 what you both have, have been talking about, which is that when agencies were given a job that was pretty straightforward, like issuing checks, for example, uh, they could get it done and get, do it in a timely, they could do their Keynesian counter-cyclical operation in a, in a timely way. But when uh, agencies were given the job of, or, or um, asked to, you know, do very elaborate sort of infrastructure building projects, whether it be high-speed rail or um, clean energy projects or these types of things. And naturally, those types of uh, investment decisions had a much longer time frame and would not necessarily be stimulative in the, in the near term. So a lot depended on the task structure of the agencies that were supposed to implement the, uh, the stimulus. I could add that uh, Jim wrote a couple of articles about what social science can tell policymakers. Um, and their skeptical uh, side came through. Um, and he, at one point he said, well, what, they, what we're not very good about is predicting the future. As a matter, he was famous for saying, I'm not going to make predictions. I heard him say once that he'd written a paper early on that made a prediction that was so bad he promised never to do it again, and he wouldn't even let people know what that paper was. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been trying to find out what it is. Uh, but the, but the, it's, uh, social science is pretty good at l evaluating things to see how if they worked, and especially seeing if they don't work very well. Uh, so there was a, a, a emphasis on the negative, but a modesty about uh, how social science can guide political analysis. Well, you're, you're talking, Shep, a little bit about how grounded 
he uh, Jim's Jim's work was, and how he was not prone to theorizing. He was more uh, inclined to look at the evidence, look at the data, see what's actually happened. I think Angela, you've had uh, an experience uh, later in Jim's life with something you were working on, where the evidence started to change his mind. Right, Jim was very uh, interested in the idea of self-control, and uh, and he believed that you know he, he didn't put the entire onus on the individual. Even he really thought that communities and families were should be very influential in helping to foster that trait in their children, especially. Um, but very very interested in self-control, and in his in his earlier writings, just in terms of you know con- criminal behavior, he thought that even criminals were rational thinkers, and that if you could respond to their negative behavior with swiftness and certainty. That you could control, that you 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 know, it helped to internalize their decision making, and that you could help to shape their behavior, um, and that's when we started to see his his relative st- strong support for incarceration. Um, that a there was a, the incap- incapacitation effect, but there was also that 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 there was a sanction that uh, if you make crime pay, you'll get more crime, and that if you made crime not pay, you'd see less of it. Um, so I think many of us agreed with him in terms of the swift and certain response. What was up in the air, though, was what that response had to be. And Mark Kleiman, who's with us today, was really influential in shaping Jim's thinking about about how to control criminals. But I think it took a lot longer to convince him of what that sanction needed to be. And I think it took our trial in Hawaii to really shape that that thinking of his. And we launched a trial in Hawaii that was really focused on getting people to think about their decisions, um, criminal criminal deeds. And there were swift and certain sanctions in place if someone violated, but the sanction was very small, which was not really something James Q had proposed before. And he waited on the data, and he kept telling us, well, we'll wait on the, we'll wait on the data. And the data came out, and it showed that, indeed, if you respond with swiftness and certainty, it didn't really matter what the sanction was um, as long as you were consistent. And he was floored by that study, uh, very enthusiastic about those results. And I think towards the end of his career in the last few years was really starting to rethink uh, uh, incapacitation and what it needed to be to get that self-control in place. So that's, it was fun to watch him you know, str- struggle in the early months of our study and then really come around. And it just shows again how strongly he was driven by data and willing to take himself into some place that he didn't think he would be. We've talked a little bit about, um, obviously, some of the uh, policing uh, policing work, <coughs> criminal justice, and this idea of how uh, what governments do and, and, and why they do it. But in the last couple of decades, really, uh, Jim's work was focused as much on um, really those profound questions in life, uh, issues of morality and character. In fact, uh, he had the the Moral Sense, I believe, he viewed as his most important book. Um, he also had On Character and the Marriage Problem, and these discussions showed up in other articles as well. Talk a little bit about um, what Jim was uh, working on there and the influence it had. Uh, maybe it's too bad John Delio is not here. We really <laughs> miss him because uh, John has written a lot about this. And I, One of the points that John makes, which I think I find very interesting, is that that this concern with moral character, uh, with civic virtue, was something that you can see a thread through all of Jim's work uh, that really drove his concerns with crime, um, that with um, uh, interest in marriage and his interest in the moral sense. Uh, And it's hard to overestimate uh, how different this is from most social science. Um, to be concerned with moral character, that sounds kind of old-fashioned. Um, 
But that uh, I think a lot of uh, work in psychology, Pietro was mentioning as earlier today, um, is confirming many of his uh, thoughts about the importance of habituation in the moral sense. Uh, and it's, I think it's added a whole new dimension to study of important areas. And I think this is an area, I, one of the things that I, is characteristic, was characteristic of his work is that in some ways he uh, um, had more in common with average Americans than with the average faculty member. Uh, and he was interested in the same set of issues. That's partly why he was such a great teacher. He really connected with his students, even though his students were way to the left of him. Uh, because I realized he was talking about important things. And I think this is one area, the connection between uh, character and government, government's role in shaping character and people's, the, people, the shape of their character, how it affects government, was a, something that underlay his work for many, many years. Just picking up on his interest yeah. in marriage, um, just to th talk about how James Q. Wilson was an inspiration. He managed to juggle, I mean, he was pr so prolific and juggled so many areas with such expertise. And if ever he paid you a visit, he would never not talk about his family and wife, who he loved dearly. <laughs> and I think that to many of us, you know, especially young academics, we're frantic. And, and taking the minute to take stock and recognize, man, this is important, but there's something even more important back at home. And he did that in a way that not many academics take time to do. Uh, I just want to um, sort of second what's been said here. Um, I mean, I, I think that Jim Wilson was basically very Aristotelian from day one. I mean, he was interested in the sources of civic and moral motivation, and his work reflects that throughout his whole career. Uh, I think in later years, <laughs> one of the reasons why he got immersed in questions of character and moral, the moral sense um, has, was because he w became increasingly worried that public policy just wasn't harmonizing with certain civic <coughs> virtues. And, uh, and uh, he was trying to, he was searching for ways to, to, to sort of make them, make, make for a better fit there. I think I just add one thing that um, we were talking about how does he differ from uh, uh, other people and one of the, uh, the book on marriage um, really ta talks about the really harmful effects of the decline of marriage, um, with something that many people have noted. Uh, I think the typical conservative uh, uh, answer to the question, why did this happen, is the 60s. You know, the 60s is the answer to why every bad thing happened. Uh, 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 and, but Jim's art, uh, answer was not the 60s. And he showed that, showed that, uh, that, that uh, there wasn't that big a change. A lot of things had changed before. And his answer was actually more profound, which was the Enlightenment. Uh, that there is, uh, the Enlightenment brought tremendous benefits in terms of individualism and rationalism, but it had some very uh, problematic side effects of excessive concern with ourselves and not our commitment to others. So that was one way in which I think he was willing to, to uh, contradict or to basically try to broaden the view of people who often agreed with him. Well, on that note, we're going to broaden the view <laughs> and uh, uh, broaden the audience and give the audience a chance to uh, ask questions of the panel and, and engage in the discussion. Start here to the panel's right. I was wondering if you, uh, if his broken window policy was ever applied to schools. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Um, 
not, you know, not, we've actually, at, at, in my, at my research group, we've been thinking about that. Um, you know, there's small little violations that go undetected in the classroom. Could that make a difference in terms of managing behavior? Now, I have to say, I'm a, I'm a clearly a shoddy researcher because I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I don't know if it has. Maybe one of the other panelists do. But I think it's a brilliant idea, and I think it could really help to, um, to, 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 to bring it right, especially in really troubled communities, help to improve what happens in the classroom. That said... Um, we have to remember that James Q. Wilson was often misquoted and misunderstood on, on, on broken windows. And, and you'd have to, and if you talked about at all about his potential failings, I think sometimes he wasn't quick enough to correct people when they abused his research uh, or took it in a different direction than what he intended. And I think often, often people would assume what you mean by that is really a zero tolerance pro approach in the classroom, and that's not what he would have intended with broken windows. Well, what he would have said is that sometimes small things can matter. Figure out the small things that matter to change the culture or the atmosphere in that room and focus on those and don't let them get away. His was not about zero tolerance, which is what people often quote him as thinking. What are, um, one of the things that Jim would often say is that the uh, plural of anecdote is data. <laughs> uh, so I will actually uh, offer an anecdote. My, my daughter uh, teaches, was in Teach for America. Um, and I, so I had some idea of, kind of the, 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 the ethos of Teach for America. And I think that it's related based, before kids can learn, they have to have an orderly environment. Um, you have to get them in the habit of, kind of paying attention, working hard, obeying the rules. Um, and once you do that, everything else becomes a lot easier. Um, and so in some ways, I think that in a lot of charter schools, uh, in a lot of schools where they teach for America volunteer uh, teachers, that that ethos at least um, is being applied every day. We've certainly seen extensions yeah. of the idea in other fields, and we, in our own work, even though we, we aren't focusing on you know broken windows per se, we are. You know, we deal with criminal offenders, often really high-risk criminal offenders, and the idea is figure out the, the, what people typically consider to be trivial things, but if you don't pay attention to them, you really let negative behavior get out of control. And yeah. we bring his thinking into our research every day. Um, it's been hugely influential, and I, I, I don't doubt that other fields have had similar responses. That they might not think of it as a broken windows theory application, but really it is. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I mean, I, I don't think you know broken windows was about... Neighborhood mm -hmm. surveillance, if you will, or community policing, but including community community policing by the by the by the citizens of the neighborhood. But but I think the concept, um, if I had to guess, I would say that Jim would have applied the same notion of a potential slippery slope here to a lot of institutions in society, mm -hmm. uh, where permissiveness <laughs> and ultimately complacency. Uh, eventually uh, leads to a breakdown in social order. And schools are, uh, in some cases, a good example of that. What would you say is Professor Wilson's legacy as regards from his teaching and writing uh, on policing in America? I think a lot of people would say broken windows, but I, I don't know. I, I mean, that clearly has been extremely influential, but I think that more than anything, relationships matter, and how the community regard the police force is, is really a big deal. And I think he really... Um, and, and, and to be honest, I think he got more police chiefs really thinking hard about research than anybody else I know. Mm. Um, that he gained their respect and was listening so carefully that they were willing to do the hard work of figuring out how to really comprehend a research paper. 
And that has, I mean, if, if you go to, I, mean, I go to police departments now, where you'll see, I mean, you'll see James Q. Wilson's books, you'll see Mark Kleinman's books. I mean, they're mm. reading academics. Um, so that, that mm. suddenly they're realizing stuffy professors can actually have something important <laughs> to say. And that was a very big deal and has changed mm. practice. I have a question to the panel's right. Hi. How did Mr. Wilson reconcile the hypocrisies, failures, and corruptions of religious organizations in contrast to secular organizations and ideals. The reason I ask is because of the merger of civic virtues, and so this idea of pulling together virtues and secular ideology, how did he blend that, or where did that come from, or how is it uh, woven together? I'm not sure this answers your question. I, I'd say two things. First, um, by talking about kind of moral character, uh, he he didn't think much of that could be brought about by haranguing people, um, by lecturing them in church. Um, he had a very, very Aristotelian idea that you um, develop good habits through repetition. Um, so it really wasn't about proselytizing, although he, like I believe, I think almost. Everyone who studied thinks that religion is very good for um, uh, the civic, for the political body. But um, I guess I'd say the, that he recognized that various types of hypocrisy are part of every organization. Um, he'd been in academia long enough to realize that it's uh, true in the university. Um, it was true in political machines. Um, and uh, you have to accept the fact that organizations made out of pe people who have some virtues and uh, vices and hypocrisies, and you shouldn't expect, as the amateur Democrats tend to be, that you're going to create organizations that are perfectly open and perfectly consistent. I'm going to take my prerogative and ask a question. Uh, could the panel talk about bureaucracy? Uh, is government bureaucratic now more so than when it was when uh, Professor Wilson started writing about this topic? Um. <laughs> I'll take a brief crack at that uh, and, and try to channel uh, John DeUlio, who unfortunately um, was um, struck down by the bureaucratic flu in the uh, Eastern <laughs> Seaboard. Um, but um, <clears throat> uh, I, I think if John were here, he'd say that you know the the scope of government and the scope of bureaucracy, in a sense, has in fact grown. It just hasn't grown in uh, the visible, formal ways that we think of it. Uh, it has grown off budget, for example. It has grown through the, uh, the employment of contractors and so on. Uh, to manage all that, there's been an enormous profusion of red tape. Um, I'm sure Shep can tell you more about how the courts have been involved in that as well. But, but so. Uh, yes, I would say that uh, indeed our uh, our society has become more bureaucratized now than it was when when he first took an interest in these questions. And I would add another thing, and I'm not sure whether Jim would agree about this, but I, I I've often was very sad that he he died before I could tell him about it. <clears throat> Much of the bureaucracy that we worry about in this society is at the state and local level. That is where that's the bottom line. And we don't have, at least the typical citizen doesn't have that much of an interaction with federal bureaucrats all the time, except for the IRS occasionally. Um, <clears throat> but, but the amount of 
bureaucratic red tape that one deals with if one is subdividing a piece of property or trying to get a building permit or uh, relatively straightforward things like that at the local and state level. Um, I'm from New York, so I know something about this, but you're from California, so you know even more. Uh, uh, is, is staggering, and, and that's something that, that we haven't really discussed um, you know, enough, I think, in our critique of this problem. What a, a, an odd feature of American politics is while the responsibilities of the federal government have grown enormously since the 1960s, federal employment hasn't. Uh, so well, how is that? It's partly what Pietro said about uh, state and local government hiring contractors, putting mandates on employers rather than having direct federal spending. And I think this is an area where uh, Jim's work bureaucracy really is fascinating because it shows how American public bureaucracy is indifferent in so many ways from our European or our Weberian model. And I just thought uh, one metaphor in that book that I always share with my students is that European politics is like a prize fight where someone, you have two parties that contend one knocks out the other, gets to rule for four or six years, however. But that's not American politics. American politics is like a barroom brawl. Um, <laughs> everyone takes in. The sides keep changing. The weapons are anything that's available, whether it's a gun or a knife or a chair. Um, it never quite ends, and it spills out into other arenas, outside the bar, into the street. Um, and you keep waiting for it to end, but it doesn't. So uh, I, I'll leave you with that metaphor. I have a question to the panel's back. Chief Bratton was here several years ago, and he perhaps is the best evidence of what has already been said, uh, the impact on the police community of Professor Wilson's research. Uh, and, you know, he would continue to sponsor, this is Bratton, you know, new research, and a lot of it was influenced by Professor Wilson. What I would be interested to know is what impact on society, specific impacts we can see in terms of his studies on morality and character? That, I mean, the reason that is so hard to answer is because he, he recognized that these are, cultural changes are extremely slow. Um, they're very hard for a government to change in the direction it wants to change them. Um, and that uh, character is obviously formed first and foremost in the family with very indirect governmental effects. Uh, but I, I guess I would say that he was really fascinated by a number of studies of, uh, of preschool programs, uh, Ypsilanti and other places, uh, where he showed that very intense intervention by at-risk for at-risk kids can have a beneficial effect. Um, that it's that's hard to scale up, uh, but it really does seem to make some significant differences in the lives of these children. Their, their proclivity to become engaged in criminal activity, their ability to work later on. So I think that's got, it's very small steps, but he found that those studies particularly interesting and important. Um, and, oh, no, I just was going to give you one example. It wasn't something that Jim had worked on specifically, but but he cited, I think, as an example. I think welfare reform has been a, an example, an illustration of what you can do by by simply imposing a work requirement on welfare recipients of helping to nurture and shore up, if you will, uh, the work ethic. Um, and uh, so that's the kind of 
sort of policy reform that I think Jim would have very much approved of, or did approve of. Uh, <coughs> Angela, did you have something? Uh, as a follow-up comment on, I think also his interest in, in, in genetics and mm. the, the biological basis of crime um, was, was, was uh, uh, he was fascinated, but it was relatively dis uncomfortable literature for him to grapple mm. with mm. because it was uncomfortable to know uh, how do you respond to the fact that I can do some genetic coding on you at birth and know whether you're likely to be a more or less moral individual. And how do we deal with the fact that some people are just at, at birth more predisposed towards criminal activity than others? And, and some really interesting. No, I think, so I think the, se the separated birth and uh, twin studies really s stressed him out. And the biological literature was really quite concerning to him. And um, yeah. we still, I know we, we, we continue to learn much more in this regard all the time. And, um, but, and, and he, he responded to that literature very well in the way that you, all you can do is still recognize that even though we are biologically different from one another, and the yes, at birth we were even either handed a good set of assets or a poor set of assets in terms of being able to control our own behavior, we ultimately still are responsible for our own deeds. And that we should be careful what we do with that literature as it emerges because we can't ever take away that individual responsibility. Uh, taking that same direction but reversing it a little bit, instead of the biological and the genetics influencing the behavior, how is it that in the society, in what he wrote about, in the social determinants, say, in medical literature, then that affects the biological and perhaps even the genetics down the road and might accelerate changes? Is that something he's ever looked into? I'm going to have to quote James Q. Wilson many times in circumstances like this, and he'd say, I just don't know. He, he may well have known. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Susan, do you have a question for the panel? I do. I, I want to go back to uh, something that came up earlier tonight. Uh, this the, one of his his first book, I guess, the Amateur Democrat, mm -hmm. and uh, not, that was not the first book. Negro oh, Negro, <laughs> second book, mm -hmm. uh, Amateur Democrat. But uh, it, it it in a way um, we know that Jim didn't like to make predictions, mm -hmm. and yet the amateur uh, Democrats seem to actually be predicting where we, how we've evolved over time uh, politically in the United States. And can we talk a little bit about that? Because it plays into today's politics quite directly. Um, uh, I'm going to let uh, Shep answer a lot of this, but uh, actually both the books, Negro Politics, which was his dissertation, ah. by the way, um, and the, the book, The Amateur Democrat, which were... I mean, that, The Amateur Democrat was published 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, what, he, this, what he identifies in that book, and in others, by the way, and is the rise, the ascent of party activists in the party system that are motivated by ideology more than by material incentives. Um, meaning patron, pork and patronage, the way the, par, the political polls did, you know, before, before these changes. And I think that that, given how early he saw this development, it was really an amazing discovery because this is exactly what's happened to our party system. The rise of militants, zealots, if you will, who've taken over the process of nominating candidates through the, through, through the, the direct primary, um, and uh, but at the time that he was writing about this, you know, it hadn't, it had by no means become the phenomenon that it is now, 
and yet, you know, his these books uh, were were including, you know, the book Political Organizations also talks about this, were um, very early forecasts of what we've we've we now have uh, uh, are now experiencing, and that it help explain the polarization of the political parties. The the, the book is about uh, reform organizations in the three cities. Uh, and as he pointed out, at the time, the organizations he was studying were primarily liberal, that they were fighting the party machine, uh, that they put a great deal of emphasis on process, democratic accountability, especially to the, the, the activist core of the Democratic Party. Uh, the the old, old parties tried to uh, facilitate compromise, often by avoiding big issues, um, would appease their supporters through material incentives like jobs um, and contracts, um, and wanted to avoid the kind of the controversial issues that the reformers really wanted to put front and center. Um, and he noted in one of the, the, the preface of a later edition that what he had described in the early 1960s is a liberal phenomenon. By 1964 Democratic Republican Convention was on full display in the Republican Party. Uh, and he really showed how this, what he called a, a ethos or a mindset, really was changing who was in politics and what they thought their conception of politics was. Um, that was further on display in the 1972 Democratic Convention. Uh, for those of us who are Democrats, that was not a, our best moment by any means. Um, uh, but it seems to have captured the entire political spectrum now and has been a particularly important cause of partisan polarization um, so that now all the people who wanted kind of to do away with the professional politicians of the old days now kind of wish that we had more of them back. Well, I'm going to wrap up with um, a question. We have uh, about a dozen of Jim's former students here uh, with us. And as I was saying to one of them, I said, it's fabulous being our age and being referred to as the students. Uh, but we do have about a dozen, almost a dozen of uh, them here with us today. So I want to go back to not Jim, the, uh, the, the policy analyst, not Jim, the uh, scholar, but let's go back to Jim, the teacher. We have a couple of his students with us here on the stage. What, are, what were Jim's particular talents and characteristics as a teacher? Um, well, um, four things. Um, he would ask incredibly deep and interesting questions. I mean, questions such as, what is the single most distinctive feature of American democracy? I mean, think about that. It's a, not an easy one to, to pick out. Um, what is a democracy, he would ask us. Why do some government organizations, some government bureaucracies perform better than others? Why do people engage in collective action, even bother to vote, when in f there's little incentive to do that since your one action isn't going to make that much difference in the larger scheme of things? Why, why do people do these things? I mean, getting students to, to think about those fundamentals was um, uh, a hallmark of Jim's approach. Um, the other thing I, uh, is, uh, a couple other things. Um, Jim was not only teaching us, he was also learning from us a lot. I mean, if you look at the bureaucracy, it's inscribed to the Harvard graduate students that he taught. I mean, because he, he really loved the, the, the sort of 
the intellectual engagement with his students. Jim was in many ways sort of like a, a great artist or, or a great scientist in, this, in, in, in that he just loved the process of intellectual inquiry, the back and forth, not just the end products of that inquiry, even though he was prolific, obviously. Um, um, the other thing is um, he kept things very simple. He was very parsimonious and accessible. I mean, he didn't complicate the classroom with technical you know, uh, discussions too much. Um, and the final thing was that he was a great performer. I mean, Jim was from these parts, and I think he might have wanted to be an actor, but he's, <laughs> you know, he, could, he, he was an actor. He'd get up before hundreds, hundreds of Harvard undergraduates in these big lecture halls and get standing ovations several times a week for his <laughs> lectures, not just at the end of the course, throughout the course. I say, uh, what does it say about uh, about a professor who can teach a course called bureaucracy <laughs> <laughs> and have hundreds of people go to it? Um, part of the background of the course that he wrote about later was that when he took the job at Harvard, um, he said he would teach anything but public administration. Um, but he was told, if you want the job, you have to teach public administration. And he said, well, I'll call it bureaucracy. <laughs> Um, and and he, I mean, he was a really brilliant lecturer, but what many people are considered brilliant lecturers do is to play to the passions of their audience. But that's not what he did. Um, he would challenge people's assumptions, um, and he would get them to think more deeply about what the issues were with the type of clarity that Pietro mentioned. And the other thing I just want to mention, that what, for us, those of us who were his students, he was incredibly generous. Um, and especially generous in giving us credit. Yes. Um, because many people, kind of, I think, will kind of use graduate student research um, and not indicate where it came from. But he really made it prominent that, that, uh, he, that this research was done by Pietro Nivola, by John Giulio. Um, and that was something that just made us very grateful, um, something we were very proud of but really showed a very deep honesty and generosity of spirit. I think what made him a really good um, professor, and he, he had just a full disclosure, I was never one of his students, although Rand imposed him on me <laughs> one uncomfortable day. It was actually in this room. Um, and they made me do a pre-dissertation defense before the, the Board of Governors kept, kept you were there. And um, I was at that screen right there. And, and what he really made you do was be fully accountable for every word you said, how you said it, and every data point you delivered. And I think I've never been more nervous about presenting to anybody than the day that, that he got to skewer us um, about our dissertation, on our dissertation defenses. What I think also really made him an outstanding teacher was that he didn't feel compelled to, as many professors do, make his students feel the way, same way he did about issues. Uh, he didn't think it was a failure if you left the room not, not following his perspective on the world. And that's unusual because most professors think they've failed if they haven't turned you around to their obviously correct way of thinking. Um, so I, I think, and I, I think finally, th what, what really made him a brilliant teacher is that he would take even a mediocre idea and make you think it was a great idea, which <laughs> made you inspired to go out and find actually good ideas, and that motivated many of us because when, when, when the smartest man in America tells you you have a good idea, what can you do but <laughs> pursue that, right? <laughs> On that note, we will wrap it up. I'd like to turn it over to Michael to say farewell. 
I, you know, we've said many times, James Q. Wilson is a huge, huge influential figure in our institution and in the lives of all of us who knew him. And uh, thank you, Shep and Angela and Pietro and Susan for reminding us why we had so much affection and so much admiration for James Q. Wilson. And thanks to all of you for coming. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.